Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Risky business, navigating the hazards of severe weather and your risk. Dr. Walker Ashley is a professor at Northern Illinois University who focuses on examining the impacts of severe and hazardous weather on society. With more extreme weather events on the rise, we see an increasing number of vulnerabilities being exposed within communities, leading to widespread loss of life and property. Improving the communication of risk imposed by severe weather is a major focus of scientists and some policymakers. Today, we'll discuss how urban sprawl and development, local infrastructure, and even socioeconomic factors have been found to play a major role in how disaster unfolds. We'll also explore ways we can mitigate or prevent future disasters through preparedness and risk assessment. This is the Weather Geeks podcast, and we were so grateful to have Dr. Walker Ashley joining us here. I'm Chris Warren. Hello to you, Dr. Ashley. Hello, Chris. So, you are a, an educator, a teacher, but also a researcher, and we're going to get into a, a lot of your findings. Also, really want to get into what your thoughts are and, and your gut reaction to things. And we can start with uh, the early March 2019 outbreak. When you saw this unfold, what was your initial reaction? What was going through your mind? Well, as a meteorologist, we could see this coming days in advance. Um, there was a heightened risk uh, in the south. Uh, for severe storms. We didn't know until about 24 hours to maybe 36 hours ahead of time that the risk was going to become a little bit more escalated. And uh, that day of, I remember watching uh, the morning and, and seeing that the threat was was increasing slowly, but we didn't know how much instability was going to be in South Georgia and, and Southeast Alabama. But as we rolled through that early afternoon, it was, it was clear that the situation was uh, becoming uh, significant. And as storms began to develop, um, I was watching on radar and you could you could feel it in, in, the, in the pit of your stomach that things were going to turn bad quickly. Unfortunately, uh, the tornado, particularly in eastern Alabama, formed and uh, was a long track and uh, went through highly vulnerable areas just south of Auburn, Alabama. Um, you know, you could see it on radar and you knew, you knew at that time that destruction was occurring. And uh, as meteorologists, we love the physical science side of it, but uh, we, we know that, that people are being impacted directly by these events. When you're looking at the ingredients, uh, you said you got a pit in your stomach. What, when you look at the atmospheric information during the day, what's the one factor? I mean, whether it's uh, instability, whether it's increased moisture, whether it's the way the satellite's playing out, what is it that, that does that for you? What scares you on a severe weather day to see pl unfold when it comes to different severe weather ingredients? Well, I think you know, the ingredients seem to be coming to, together, uh, kind of a juxtaposition of, of most importantly, instability and the wind shear. And the wind shear rapidly increased just after the noon hour. And the big question mark all along as we were leading up to the event was whether or not we were going to get the instability in that area. And so it, it's not just one ingredient, it's just a, a mixture and a combination, a marriage of those ingredients coming together at one specific spot. But that particular day, the, the, the pressures were falling very, very quickly. And the atmosphere doesn't like to be out of imbalance uh, for much, for, for long periods of time. And so it, it, it increases the, the wind shear um, in the environment right ahead of these surface lows. And, and if, unfortunately, that's exactly where this rotating thunderstorm um, anchored itself and uh, rolled right along that warm front. And that's an area that uh, is prone for, for significant tornado genesis. And of all, I mean, at, at this point, 
more than three dozen tornadoes, and then the one, the EF4, with winds estimated at 170 miles an hour. Uh, you mentioned going through highly vulnerable areas. Will you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, the, the, you know, in general, um, the Mid-South and the Southeast part of the United States has relatively high vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is a very, very complex uh, issue and, and studied for decades in its relationship to disasters of all sorts. But in this particular situation, we have uh, socioeconomic uh, vulnerability, and that is that we have a lot of people that are impoverished. Um, we have a lot of folks who do not have the means to acquire information efficiently. Uh, we have a lot of folks uh, that are exposed to natural hazards, and those particularly are manufactured or mobile homes are our, our biggest threat for when it comes to tornadoes or any sort of damaging winds. Uh, and our research has, has shown that, that this particular area immediately south of, of Auburn down to Montgomery is an area of, of relatively low socioeconomic conditions and a very high number of mobile homes. And it's very unfortunate that this tornado um, transect right through this, this highly vulnerable region. Is there anything that can be done in the short term? The short term, well, yes. I mean, I, I, what I always try to do is, say, what, what would I do if I lived in a manufactured house? What would I do if I lived in a mobile home or a weak-framed older home? And I think uh, for those people that live in those vulnerable housing stocks, they need to be a little bit more proactive rather than reactive. And if I lived in those, those vulnerable housing stock, I would be listening for tornado watches, and when a watch occurs, it usually gives you two to three hours of advance notice that the conditions might be favorable for tornadoes. I think at that time I might be looking for something more substantial, more shelter, a better, a better house, maybe a community center, maybe a library, um, and just take up shop there for, for the, the number of hours that the tornado watch is occurring. I know that we, in some cases that might not be realistic. But for the, for the folks in these houses, you just have to be a little bit more proactive. We evacuate for hurricanes. Um, there's no reason why we can't uh, spend a couple of hours in a community shelter or a library or a more substantial structure um, when these events occur. I think that's a very interesting point. Drawing the analogy between evacuation and actually taking action when a watch is issued, when there's a tornado watch, for some, are you suggesting that means do something? It's not just pay attention to getting the warnings, because like you, I think of the same thing. What do I do? Or what should my family do when I'm away and some and a tornado is threatening? There's a tornado warning. What do you do? Where do you go? What's the plan? But we know that being in a mobile home is not a good idea, even for some of the lower end tornadoes. So, I mean, do you think there needs to be more done to communicate that or impose that from the National Weather Service? And we're going to talk a little bit more about the impact-based forecasting and communication a little bit, but specifically this tornado watch scenario. What do you think? Is there anything else that can be done? You know, the un unique thing about f folks in, in mobile homes, they, they actually know as much, if not more, than people that live in, in permanent houses. But the issue is that that knowledge gap of what they should do when they occur in many cases, these folks don't have the means within a couple of minutes or seconds or even 10 minutes to get to a more substantial shelter. So that's why I, I, I think that we need to be more proactive, whether it's the weather service, uh, the emergency managers in the local communities or the emergency manager for the state. I think that we need to specifically tailor our messages and educate those folks in those very vulnerable housing structures, because these are generally the places where folks are dying. Uh, we, we deal with about 40 to 50 percent of the deaths are in manufactured housing or mobile homes, when that's only about six or seven percent of the housing stock in the United States. So there's clearly a, an issue here that, that, that we need to focus on. And I, I'm hearing, I think, that there is, should be a lot of self-reliance and a lot of uh, self-responsibility. True. There is every every element has a little bit of self, uh, you know, preservation personnel, uh, uh, you know, being responsible. But at the same time, we need to empower these people and we need to empower folks uh, in these vulnerable housing stock or vulnerable situations with information, with knowledge ahead of time, not the day of, not the minute before, well in advance of these events. And uh, I think that comes through education uh, whether it's uh, the K through 12 level, uh, so that that reaps benefits in the decades in the future, 
or uh, by being a little bit more proactive with our seniors in the community. And in regards to warnings, what is your reaction when you hear in the media, uh, maybe read somewhere that people, victims did not have warning or did not have time to react? What's your reaction to that? Um, Simply, it's frustration. Um, Most of these, if not almost all of these significant events, these what I call big boy tornadoes, these EF2s, EF3s, EF4s in this case, and EF5s are well forecast. They're well detected. Uh, The warnings are oftentimes, um, in the case of this, we're talking dozen plus minutes of, of notice. Um, unfortunately, for some folks, that's not enough time to seek a shelter, especially if you're in a rural community without any sort of, of sheltering available. Um, so it's frustrating, but I, at, this, at the end of the line, I still understand and appreciate why some folks um, didn't receive the warning. And, and uh, I think that we need to do a better job, again, of the educating folks that that is available, that information is readily available, oftentimes with a smartphone. Um, and and you got to act on that information. I think a big, big issue is, of course, complacency. And some of the follow-up issue uh, interviews that I saw on Sunday and into Monday were, were people that just said, ah, you know, I just never thought that it would occur here. We see that time and time again with every, every disaster that we deal with. And that really is a challenge. How do we, how do we get past that? Well, we're full of them. We're full of what we call cognitive biases. Every single one of us has has a, a whole litany of, of these cognitive biases that we fight um, in, in what we call normalcy bias, the fact that we never think that it'll occur here, or optimism bias, that is the fact that, that risk from a hazard is, is less than the, my risk from a hazard is less than that faced by others. Those are the two big cognitive biases that you know, this is not just a, a tornado or a weather hazard sort of issue. This is, this comes back to driving down the road and looking at your cell phone. Most of us are dealing with these cognitive biases, and we got to push against those. And I think the best way is examples and illustrations and and the actual media. The seeing the the after effects of this leaves an imprint on our brains, and and we start to realize that hey, it can happen to us. And uh, maybe my risk isn't as low as I think. So how, how do we get past that? How do we communicate? How do we reach people? Is it the, is it the schools? Is, is it the media? Is it a combination? If you were in charge of everything and everybody, what would you implement if you could? I, I'm not sure I'd want that responsibility, <laughs> but I, it, it's multifaceted, multi-pronged. There is not going to be a magic bullet. Um, I wish that there was a magic bullet, um, but I, I'm a firm believer that we need to invest in that K through 12 education and make sure that that the children have an understanding and appreciation of the risks and the vulnerabilities that they face and are going to face through the remainder of their lives. It's it, it, educating at that level that infiltrates the households. They come back home and talk about it at dinner. They talk about it at breakfast, and they talk about it with grandpa and grandma. And that's that's the way we get information disseminated. I, so I'm a, I'm a believer in that. But at the same time, there's elders and there's certainly folks that are you know with stature in the communities that we need to educate. People will turn to those type of folks, and uh, um, I think that those people need to be well informed as well. Starting with uh, education at the young levels, uh, at the younger ages, uh, that uh, you know would ideally build on the future. Looking back in, in history and looking at the tornado deaths over the past decades, not a lot of changes uh, as far as the number of deaths, uh, but the forecasts are getting much, much better. Uh, that's what I want to talk about here coming up with Dr. Walker Ashley. Dr. Walker Ashley, uh, professor at Northern Illinois University, uh, the University of Geographic and Atmospheric Sciences Department since 2005, and an AMS-certified consulting meteorologist. What do we do? The forecasts are getting better. The lead time is getting better, but no significant drop. What's your reaction to that? And that's the frustrating thing. I liken Sunday to being, you know, in a football game, and we we kick the the the, the field goal, and we it, the kicker went it just went right down the middle. Yet somehow we lost the game, 
And it's extremely frustrating that's occurring. The physical science side is doing really an amazing job. The only strike against the physical science, the meteorology, is the false alarms. And um, I, I know that there's others in the communities, particularly James Spann in, in, in Birmingham, um, as well as el- elsewhere, have, have focused in on that false alarm, that there's just too many warnings and uh, that false alarm might, may or may not uh, lead to complacency issues. So um, on, the false, uh, on that physical science side, I, I got to give a shout out to the Storm Prediction Center, to the local forecast offices in Birmingham, Peachtree City, and Tallahassee. They did a wonderful job uh, for that event. But as we saw, the consequences were still very, very real. And um, we need to continue to invest into uh, resources that look into that socioeconomic side of things. So look into the social science, continue to tackle that issue. The physical science alone is not going to solve these issues. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And Dr. Ashley, like you, on that um, March 2019, first weekend in March uh, 2019 uh, tornado outbreak, uh, the information I was seeing on social media from some of the local National Weather Service offices, I think they were doing a great job of really hitting home the certainty that something bad was going to happen. Uh, how do you think we we connect the dots here? You mentioned earlier about uh, educating children at a young age, uh, getting it you know, part of the fabric of a family. Uh, is it about education or do we need to rethink uh, mobile homes as well in the long term? Yeah, manufactured housing is an interesting industry. Um, some of them are, are relatively well built. Uh, um, the issue, I think, becomes the, the fact that the framing is relatively thin um, and the sheathing is relatively thin uh, and whether or not they're installed correctly. Uh, tie downs and various other actions that occur with a manufactured house, uh, if, at least if it's up to code, um, should hopefully make that home less vulnerable. But at the same time, it still only requires about 45% of the wind force to destroy a manufactured house compared to that of a permanent house. So there's distinct vulnerability there that I think that we need to, particularly our engineers and the folks in the manufactured housing community, um, need to start maybe taking a look at a little bit more intently and realize that there is an issue there and that we don't just push it off to the side as the fact that we're making economical uh, housing. Um, this is only going to grow as a, as a problem. There's more and more manufactured housing out there. And with the evolution of, of the risk of, of tornadoes and other various hazards out there to, to climate change, um, it seems as though this is going to become an increasing problem as we move through the 21st century. Yeah, and you speak with knowledge as well. And oftentimes uh, when... Leaders, government leaders, uh, managers of businesses and organizations, they need data to make some decisions or to point to some of the decisions or support the decisions they've made. We talk about some of the research and some of the data that you've accumulated on this subject. Yeah, so we've I've looked at various things. I've looked at uh, um, mortality, tornado mortality broadly across the United States, and um, that, that research extends some 10 years back. But we've we've zeroed in on a couple of issues with the uh, changing risk, uh, that is the changing climate of, of tornadoes, and also the changing vulnerability, and that is namely the, the exposure, that is us humans and our buildings and our built environment out there, particularly our housing. Um, and so we've, we've co-mingled those uh, and, and looked at those and how we expect them to change in the 21st century. The other thing that we've been focusing on with a Vortex Southeast grant is looking at manufactured housing and how it varies across the central part of the United States, which we typically think of as as the greatest tornado threat in the United States, although there's a little bit of a problem with that, um, as I might mention here shortly. But the other issue is looking at 
the comparison between the central United States as manufactured housing and that in the southeast, particularly in Alabama and Mississippi, and in locations like Tennessee and Georgia. And what we found with that research is, is somewhat surprising. The, the, the number of manufactured houses in, in places like the south is much, much greater than what we find in the Great Plains. And most importantly, the distribution of those houses across the landscape is much, much more spread out in the South than what you find out, for instance, in Kansas and Oklahoma. In Kansas and Oklahoma, those are the manufactured housing is much more in a community, um, what we sometimes would, would t- call a park. But in the South, they're scattered throughout the rural landscape. Yes, there's certainly manufactured housing communities and parks. But at the same time, a lot of our rural locations, much like what we experienced in early March, um, have high, very high populations of folks living in manufactured housing as well. And so what we found is that the, the, uh, the, 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 if we just r- simulate tornadoes across these landscapes, that the likelihood of folks being impacted um, in, in Alabama in manufactured housing was about three and a half times that of what we found in Kansas. So these people are at a very heightened threat in, in the Mid-South. And not to be crass or, you know, overly uh, insensitive, but essentially it's just there's more targets out there. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's like a, a bigger dartboard? Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And this is something we've called the expanding bullseye effect. And, and really, you can fit anything you want in there. Our cities, our, our manufactured housing, our permanent housing. Um, the development pattern in this country since World War II has been to grow and spread. And so I liken it to, uh, you know, the bow and arrow, the archery range where you take uh, uh, an arrow and think of an arrow as, as a tornado. But over time, your, your target has been growing and growing immensely. So the likelihood of that arrow striking the bullseye or the, the uh, unfortunately, people in this case has been growing immensely. And so the threat level, in particular in the Mid-South and the Southeast part of the United States, has grown much more significantly than what we found in the Midwest or in the Great Plains. And that's just simply because more people have moved to the Sun Belt and we spread across that landscape. Those of you that travel to Atlanta or Birmingham or any of these communities in the South know the sprawling nature of our cities in, that, in those regions. And that's really... Do you think that perhaps, I think that's interesting, how the forecasts have gotten better, so people are going to get more warnings with more lead time, ideally, if those warnings are received and understood. However, you have a lot more people to warn in a lot more places, so, you know, five tornadoes that happened, you know, say, you know, five decades ago, and only one of them hits a community, now maybe four out of five of those could hit a community. Right, that's something we've we've simulated. We uh, um, we we built a model where we can simulate simulate ten thousand, hundred thousand years. We can do whatever we want with it. Simulate ungodly numbers of of tornadoes. But the other thing is, we pulled back and just looked at singular events. We looked at the Moore, Oklahoma event, um, most recent Moore, Oklahoma tornado event. There's been numerous events there. Uh, the the Joplin tornado. We've looked at uh, Plainfield from the 1990s various high-end tornado impacts. And what we did is contrasted the landscape underneath those tornado footprints from, say, the 1940s all the way, and we projected all the way to 2100. And the scary thing is that some of these communities, you've gone from, you know, maybe 50 to 100 housing units impacted, uh, say, in the 1970s or 80s, to two, three, four, five thousand housing units that would be impacted if that same event occurred today. So, Really on the outskirts of our cities, suburbia and exurbia, um, these rural locations we think of being rural, um, have, have really seen dramatic increases in the number of, of exposure elements, and that is housing, people, and the built environment. Is there anything, when you talk about the models and the simulations that you've done, looking either uh, back in, into the past as you run the simulations, or even looking to the future, what scares you? What do you think was the most scariest incident that you saw uh, based on these simulations or possibly project in the future? Well, just subtle shifts in the track. Um, for instance, uh, we go back to the early March event. Um, I don't think people realize how close that event was to Columbus, Georgia. That's a city of 200,000 plus. And 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry for those folks in the communities that were impacted. It's a terrible event. But let me tell you, it could have been a lot, lot worse. You take that same event and shift it just 15 or 25 miles off to the southeast, uh, I fear what the, 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 the casualties would have been in that particular event, and the monetary losses would have been significant. So I, those are the things that keep me up at night, are the, the potential event, uh, we take a violent EF4 or EF5 tornado and roll it through you know, the outskirts or maybe through the middle of some of our larger cities, our medium-sized cities, or even our smaller cities like Columbus, Georgia. Man, that is, that is a nightmare scenario. Now, I grew up on the West Coast and always heard about the big one. You never know when it's going to happen because we're talking geological time and earthquakes. Do you think the big one hitting a big city is just a matter of time, similar to like the next big one in Los Angeles or Seattle? No doubt. It's coming. Um, I don't know where it's going to be. It could be Chicago. It could be Kansas City. It could be Oklahoma City. It could be Atlanta. Uh, it could be any of these large cities or medium-sized or smaller cities. And as we saw with Joplin, um, you, you know, a singular tornado event kills 155-plus people. And yet we also deal with $3 billion in losses from a singular event. I think that's just uh, one possibility. I really, really fear and, and think that we could be on the order of maybe a $10 billion singular event as we move into the future. I don't think we've seen the worst case yet. And it's out there and it's coming. Now, would the worst case be like what we saw, the NF4 right through a downtown? I mean, you're talking about, I mean, this is, these, are, these are horrific uh, things to imagine. Um, but I think it's important to talk about. I mean, what else keeps you up at night, I guess? Yeah, those are the things that, that you got to be careful because you, you speak to these sorts of scenarios to emergency managers, and I don't want them to just throw their hands up in the air and go, there's nothing we can do. But we have to be proactive and think that these events can and, and, and are probably going to occur. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm big on, on emergency managers and police and the fire getting together and doing exercises. Um, whether it's a very small town of, say, 300 people, all the way up to, say, the city of Chicago or Atlanta, you know, they need to be prepared for what happens when a big event comes through and their hospital, their infrastructure is overwhelmed. What happens when power is cut to large sections of the city? And what happens if this is part of a, a larger outbreak? You know, what we saw earlier in March, I mean, people, people forget, we, we think about that one singular tornado. There was another tornado right behind this one that was falling right on the same track about 30 to 45 minutes behind. So you think about the, the, the real fearful situation of not only a singular violent tornado rolling through a, a highly populated area, but how about one coming 34, you know, 30 to, to an hour later? Boy, that's a nightmare scenario, and we have to prepare for that. Um, there is some reality that the likelihood of that occurring is actually relatively small, but is it a possibility? You better believe it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are talking with Dr. Walker Ashley, a professor at Northern Illinois University who focuses on examining the impacts of severe and hazardous weather on society. Uh, Dr. Ashley, we've, we've talked about the nightmare scenario, uh, equating it to the big one uh, of an earthquake for a major city on the West Coast, just a matter of time before a strong and violent tornado goes through a large city in the Midwest or, or in the South, uh, the chances, of course, are low just uh, based on probabilities. Uh, but you mentioned that communication and working with different agencies, emergency managers is so important. I want to focus a little bit on the positive right now. And what are some of the advances as you've been studying this that you've seen that gives you hope either in the emergency preparedness community or individuals, technology itself? What gives you hope going forward? 
that the physical science is finally waking up and seeing that the social science side of things is, is important. You can't just thrust science onto people and expect them to understand and digest it and do something with it. So the fact that the Weather Service, the fact that NOAA um, and all on the physical side are starting to wake up and see that it's a much more complex issue than just increasing warning lead time. Um, I think another big push has been what we call the integrated warning team, this process where the Weather Service, the local, local media entities, as well as the emergency management all get together in the same room and they talk. And they hammer it out, and they think about these worst-case scenarios, but they also think about the other more likely scenarios. Uh, that communication between our community leaders, our federal leaders, is paramount, and we're seeing more and more of that. And I would love to see NOAA, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, continue to invest in those sorts of team-building exercises, because that's where we're going to get a lot of value out of the science. Is there any one event that you think was maybe a turning point for the way emergency managers operate? Oh, boy. Emergency managers are a little bit different than, say, uh, the meteorologists. I think the emergency managers are, have been driven. That, that's, that field has grown significantly since the 1990s. Um, I don't know if there's a singular event that occurred um, to, 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 to for people to finally realize that emergency management is a, is a key post in our communities. Um, at the weather service level, I would say that it was, you know, there's, there's always going to be events, um, but it was particularly the 2011 uh, series of, of outbreaks we had that year, of course, the April 27th outbreak, but that's also the year of Joplin. Um, you know, these, are, these were, I think, game changers. And the reports that came out after these events is we, the science was, was relatively good. I take Joplin as an example. They had dozens of minutes of warning lead time, yet we had 155 people killed. What went wrong there? The physical science was there. But uh, what we found is that we were lacking on that, that, that the population in general didn't understand and appreciate the warnings and that complacency was a big, big issue. We also found out that humans are complex. I mean, we've known that for a long period of time, but we, it was there, front and center, that people always seek out additional information. We're curious creatures. And so just telling somebody to go take shelter is not the end. People are going to seek out additional information and confirmation, and we have to take that into consideration when we, when we redo our warnings in the future. And there is a sense that that is coming. In recent years, there's been more and more attention being paid to the impact-based forecast by the National Weather Service and the local offices. I've been to seminars hearing from, uh, in conferences, hearing from the National Weather Service and talking about that and talking about the future. What is your thought on that? you think that should be a, a, an important role? Should there be an additional person just for communicating? Or is it something the National Weather Service says, hey, we do the forecast, we do the, the best forecast science allows, and if people can't you know, understand it, that's, you know, unfortunate, but that's kind of where we end. What do you think about the, uh, the impact-based forecasting? Well, you gave me a proposition earlier in this discussion. You said, what if I was uh, holding yes. purse strings and was a big leader and, and could make decisions? If it were up to me, I would, I would let the physical scientists, the meteorologists do their meteorology. They are the experts at meteorology. Let them do that. What I think that some of our federal agencies should do is invest more uh, in a center or centers dedicated to the social science side of things so that the information that is found there can make its way back into the warning products. Um, so just like we have a storm prediction center or a weather prediction center or a center dedicated to dealing with models, I think we need to have a center dedicated to the social science side of things. And letting those experts, you know, uh, deal with the, the, the after effects, the surveys, the qualitative research that's so, so difficult, but yet so important, and then getting those best practices, the best information from that research, and then disseminating it to the physical science, that's where I think the, the progress is going to be made. I don't want to see the physical side thinking or acting like they're a social scientist um, and making big, big, broad decisions just because they think it's going to work. That doesn't, that's not how it should go. We need to really make sure that what we're forcing out there 
to the communities is actually you know, viable and well-researched. Don't do the old top-down mentality. Yeah, it seems science, uh, meteorology, the science of it is so complicated, yet so are people. And both aspects uh, are different, and trying to relate one to the other can be extremely difficult. Yeah, you're talking about a complex puzzle here. It's, it's not only meteorology itself is, you know, anybody who's spoken to a meteorologist knows that the science is, is difficult. It's a lot of physics. It's a lot of math. It's infinitely complex in its explanation. Um, but at the same time, when you're commingling that with human beings and our vulnerabilities, boy, we are, again, there's not just one public out there. Yeah, and I think that the Weather Service for, for, for you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, stretching into the 80s, just thought of, of as just general one public. What we've learned is that there's there's infinite number of publics out there going down to the individual level. And each one of us is a little bit different, wired a little differently, and we all receive and digest and do something with information a little bit differently. And an appreciation for that would go a long way. If you had the opportunity to knock on every single person's door that's in a mobile home or in an area where tornadoes threaten, what would you say? What's the biggest misconception people have? It can happen to you. Uh, you know, l- let me show you some pictures of the after effects of, of this event. It can happen to you. And all I'm asking you to do is just spend a little bit more time. You, you know, when you hear on the news that there's a threat a few days out, just keep a little bit more of an eye tuned to that threat. And it's not like a, a house fire. We, we, many of us prepare for house fires. You know, you know what to do in that sort of event. That's an, that's a, that's something that is very, very short fuse. In many cases with these violent events, we can see it coming two or three days out. We, not, we might not be able to nail it down to the exact city block, but it's your responsibility if the weather service or if your local media uh, meteorologist is saying, hey, watch out in two to three days or watch out tomorrow, watch out this afternoon. It then turns to your responsibility to watch out. And so I would just ask for folks to realize that it can happen to you don't think that it won't happen to you. And we'd like to talk a little bit more about some of your other research, uh, because sometimes people get too focused on some of the big events, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes, and whether or not they believe it can happen to them. There are other storms, severe thunderstorms uh, can be life-threatening, and derechos. We talk about some of the other information or studies or concerns you have about those weather-related events uh, related to tornadoes or just on their own. Yeah, I mean, I think people have this, uh, I can't think of the number of times I've driven through a town with a severe thunderstorm warning, and everybody's just going about their business like it's normal. There's, there's definitely a difference between the preparation and the mitigation that occurs with a tornado warning versus a severe thunderstorm warning. And what I want folks to realize is that severe thunderstorms can pack just as much of a punch, in some cases more of a punch, than, than a lot of our tornadoes. And so we've, we've, we've uncovered and, and realized that a lot of folks still die in what we call non-tornadic, sometimes known as straight-line winds, particularly with events like you mentioned, derechos, which are very, very high-end. They tend to occur most frequently across the Midwest and the Mid-South and in sometimes stretching into the Mid-Atlantic. These particular events are, are, are as deadly, if not more deadly, than most of our tornado events. And they're much more widespread, by the way. They affect a lot more people. Um, and can have have huge implications uh, in terms of impacts. And is this uh, also going back to the bullseye effect to the uh, a storm that's going to hold together? And Duray shows they're you know strong winded line of storms that that goes over several states potentially. Does it go into that effect that it has a chance to hit more people? Yeah, this is, I mean the expanding bullseye. Uh, the fact that we've spread our, our targets as we called them earlier, um, but humans in our built environment across the landscape. Um, this, is a, this is not only a threat for, for weather hazards, but climate hazards, but it's also an issue with pretty much every threat out there, um, uh, you know, technical side of things, uh, to terrorism, to so on and so forth. Uh, we've essentially enhanced the probability that there's going to be a disaster, and that probability is increasing uh, because we continue to kind of uh, be a little bit laissez-faire in terms of our development practices in this country. And 
I think that also goes to the idea that, that people say, well, you know, it was a natural disaster. Well, nature's going to happen. We're the ones that make it a disaster because we live there. I think oh, that's boy, a fair I, statement. I don't like, yeah, that, that term natural disaster should be thrown out. Um, there is such thing as a natural hazard. Uh, and those are the tornadoes. Those are the hurricanes. Those are the derechos. Those are the droughts. Those are the floods. But when you say natural disaster, I start to, to, to get a little upset. And, and it really is a commingling of societal vulnerabilities. And in fact, more importantly, the societal vulnerabilities that mixes with a hazard that creates a disaster. It's, it's actually more of a socioeconomic disaster than a natural disaster. How did you how did you get into this? How did how did you get uh, interested in researching the hazardous weather and the natural hazards and its impact on society? You know, I, I, I grew up a child of the '80s. I grew up a child of the Weather Channel. Um, you know, I, I, I remember sitting on the couch and always waiting for that local on the eights or the five day at the time it was a five day forecast that I think came on at 20 minutes after the hour. I can remember those vividly as a Southerner waiting for the next snowstorm, which never seemed to come. Um, but I, I have, my mom passed last, last year, and I had the opportunity to go clean out my, my memories from, from her house. And she had saved all these documents, all these artwork and homeworks and stuff. And I found uh, one of the pieces of art that I had drawn probably when I was six or seven years old. And it was a cityscape, some, some buildings uh, drawn on a piece of paper with a tornado coming at it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've been ingrained in this for way, way too long. And I think it was just a fascination with weather, but more importantly, the weather and how it affects folks, how it affects the real people on the ground day to day. Um, and I've certainly had that effect uh, in my own life. Um, living in the South, I can acutely remember a couple of events that, that uh, affected my family and affected uh, friends uh, directly. And so I think it just grew into a fascination for trying to figure out ways or methodologies to reduce those impacts. Um, and it's just grown from there. And thinking about that, and that's, you know, so important looking back at how this started, I think, and interesting that you can see, you can trace the the inkling or the little seed that was uh, maybe germinated when you were a child of the impact of weather has, you know, on society and on people, but also on our families. What, what scares you the most? We talked about what keeps you up at night uh, as far as, you know, when it comes to research and a large tornado hitting a big city, but what scares you? What are you worried most about? Well, I mean, it, it always comes back down to family, right? Um, I'm all, often out on the road uh, doing a lot of storm chasing in May and June, and I leave my family back in northern Illinois. And that's the heightened time of the year for, for tornadoes. I can remember an event of the so-called Rochelle Fairdale tornado that occurred in 2015 uh, that have affected communities about 15 to 20 miles to my west. I chased that storm. And I remember vividly calling my wife that day to say, hey, <laughs> Get ready to take shelter. And, uh, um, you know, I, th I think it all comes back down to the people you know and the, and the, and the, and, and the people that you, you, you visit every day, and you want them to be safe. And so if you have an appreciation for that, you want to kind of transcribe that or translate that to other families out there. What are the best practices underneath my roof, and how can I implement that around the, the United States? And what are some of the best practices? What would your family say if I, if I uh, asked, what's it like uh, uh, living with Dr. Ashley? Well, they turn into weather geeks. Do um, they? Naturally. <laughs> my son is a big weather geek, and uh, I, I figure my daughter will be as well. But, you know, the, we've, had, we've had frank discussions. What happens if this occurs? And it's just not tornadoes. You know, you've got to have frank discussions, mature discussions about the realities of life. And when it comes to tornado, the, the truth is, is that, you know, we're doing some rem remarkable stuff out there. Uh, one of the things that I've always kind of fretted is I seem to look at death and destruction a lot, but there's a lot of survivability out there that's never really been assessed. Let's do studies on those best practices, like why did that person survive that event rather than why did they die in that event? And so... Coming back to that, you know, at the end of the day, you can 
more than likely survive almost every single tornado out there if you do the very simple and right things. And if you have a house that's a, that's a frame-built home, a stick-built home, you know, you just get into the interior, lowest level of that house. If you don't have a basement, that's fine. Get into an interior closet, bathroom. More than likely, you're going to survive, even in the most violent tornado event. If you're in your manufactured house, I want you to be more proactive. I want you to think ahead of time when that tornado watch occurs and be ready to rock and roll and get out of there um, when that threat really becomes heightened. Just be proactive, be thoughtful, because guess what? It's going to happen when you least suspect it. Dr. Ashley, what's next for you? Oh, man. Well, I got to go teach. Uh, <laughs> I'm always teaching and, and educating uh, um, uh, the students here. But, you know, we're do, continuing to, to down this road of, of really trying to understand from the social science side as well as the physical science side the vulnerabilities of the manufactured housing community. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm very interested in how tornado risk is going to change in the future as well. So not just the societal side. How might tornadoes, will they become more intense? Will they become more frequent? And so we're doing a lot of high-resolution numerical simulations uh, trying to figure out that, that question. And in looking at that question, the warming world and the way patterns are changing, what concerns you the most looking forward on that aspect? That we're juicing the atmosphere. Um, that the research, at least, you know, it's very green, it's very young, very new research, is suggesting that tornado frequency might increase, and that is the severe thunderstorm environments might increase in the future for the United States. But the other thing is the variability that's going to coincide with that. We're going to see some years where there's very, very few tornadoes or tornado outbreaks, and then I think that's going to lead to some complacency, and then we're going to have big, big years, much like 2011. So I have a there's a very complex intermingling between the social science and the physical science that it seems as though, as I like to think, we're loading the disaster dice as we move throughout the 21st century. On one die, we have the social side, and on the other side, we have the physical or the risk uh, due to tornadoes. And we might not hit it every time on the disaster craps table, but we're increasing our odds as we move further and further into this interesting warming world that we have. Uh, are there any connections out there that you have a gut feeling about that you don't have the data to support yet? No, I, I don't tend to go. I try not to go too much with the old gut feeling. Um, you know, I hypothesize things and then we go gather, try to gather data um, and, and try to answer those questions. So uh, as I've mentioned earlier this semester, or excuse me, early this uh, this conversation, um, you know, rolling with your gut can be very, very dangerous, uh, coming back to those cognitive biases. Uh, so I, I try not to, to do that much. Okay. What about your rolling with your mind then? Is there anything that you think, any hypothesis that you have a hard time proving that you, that you believe in? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm most fascinated about, you know, how our hazards are going to change in this, in, this, in this global warming and climate change environment we have. And I don't think we know too much. You know, I think the big holy grail out there is this event attribution, what we call event attribution science. When we have a big disaster, when we have a hurricane or when we have a tornado outbreak, I get lots and lots of calls from reporters and they want to immediately say, hey, can we blame this on climate change? And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not there yet. We can't blame it now. What you, I think you're actually, let me rephrase your question. Is climate change contributing to the change in magnitude or frequency of an event? And I think we're getting there, but we got a lot of research. And so, um, you know, my thought is, is that we're going to see a lot more, uh, let's say an increase in the frequency of tornadoes. I'm not so certain about the magnitude of tornadoes, but the big, big thing that I'm most interested in is that variability. Are we going to see wide swings in the number of tornadoes in a given year as we move throughout the 21st century? So I really want to focus in on some of that attribution science. And is that actually going to be some of what you're going to be looking at? Oh, definitely. We're, uh, we're using NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation's supercomputer out there in Laramie, Wyoming, to run high-resolution simulations. And we're, we're, we're looking historically, looking back in time and simulating thunderstorms, and then we're looking at the future state 
enhancing the greenhouse effect, enhancing the amount of moisture and heat in the atmosphere, and trying to simulate what storms might look uh, look towards the middle part of this century and the latter part of this century. Those, uh, Those simulations are very, very expensive in terms of the amount of time and resources that they take, though. They take months, if not a year, to run. Mm. And when do you think we'll know more? Well, we'll always know more. There's a, science is incremental. <laughs> right. It's incremental. Um, you know, I think the attribution science world of things is going to really see a revolution in the next five to ten years. Uh, the simulations, the the things that we're able to do now, and more. You know, the other thing is the machine learning and the AI, the artificial intelligence that we can run on these big data sets now is is really revolutionary. And so, so the science is always going to be growing, but I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be researching at this time in my career. And I, I think the next five to 10 years, we're going to have some, some big answers to those really, really big questions as to whether hazards and disasters are going to become more commonplace as we roll through this century. What would surprise you in the next 15 or 20 years? Something that we don't know right now. What would surprise you? Uh, what happens if we actually see a degree? I think that we have a, a bias to look at the worst of things. Um, and what happens if we, we, we come out and we find, hey, you know, there, there's little evidence of this or that. Uh, I, I would be surprised if we can't get to that attribution question. Um, I, I think we, there's always going to be complexity. There's always going to be uncertainty. But uh, um, I, 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 I struggle. I don't want to think about the possibility of not knowing things. And so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll move towards that direction of, of knowing a lot more and can tell the policymakers that, hey, you know, we got to we got to be proactive here. This is just not something that we can kick the can down the road and let our children worry about. Is there anything else that we need to uh, talk about and not to leave anything on the table? No, I just said, the, you know, for your listeners, I would just say that the individual odds of you being affected by a tornado or a hazard might not be changing by much, but the odds of something somewhere being hit are increasing significantly. And so we as a society need to have a good appreciation for that. And at the individual level, take your life seriously. It's your responsibility. These threats are real and they occur and they can occur in your backyard. Dr. Walker Ashley, professor at Northern Illinois University, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned uh, quite a bit here, and I, I, a topic I'm extremely fascinated in. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, you've been listening to Weather Geeks. Uh, honored to have Dr. Walker Ashley. Mm-hmm.